Pray with me. God and Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that you might be speaking through it to us. Teach us to follow Jesus more closely, to delight in his work of grace more deeply. Conform us to his image, even though we are all sinful. And be with me, though I am sinful, as I seek to preach his word. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to start just by acknowledging something really big about the Bible. The Bible claims that the world is upside down. Thanks to sin, the very DNA of humanity and of our societies, our instincts, all of that is messed up. And we love what we should hate and hate what we should love. But we don't notice that the world is upside down. We don't notice it because each of us is upside down as a part of it. And so it's as if you had flipped the, the, the building upside down here, but then you were also hanging from what is now the ceiling. You look around and everything looks normal. Christianity claims that the world is upside down because it means to be a revolutionary message. Revolutionary in the literal sense. It is about turning things right side up. But we can easily miss that message, and many Christians do. That's how Christianity becomes a religion, a hollow moral shell, or a hypocritical way to feel better than other people. We try to make Christianity fit this upside-down world, not realizing that it's upside-down, and it gets messed up too. And I say all of that up front because we need to, to recognize that in order to understand one of the core themes of the Gospel of John, or of Luke, which is the great reversal. In Luke's portrait of Jesus, Luke invites us to recognize that there is this great reversal coming to the world, a right-side-upping of the upside-downness. And that is a theme that we need to hear because we need to have our view of the world reversed. Only then will we understand what Jesus is about. So here's what we're going to do this morning. First, I'm going to show you that theme of the great reversal from the text that we just heard from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And then we're going to talk about why that theme is the case and then we're going to talk about what that should mean for our lives. First, let's just talk about the big idea of the great reversal. You see it in a bunch of places in this story. If you just start at the beginning, uh, Mary has just been told that she is pregnant with Jesus by this angel, even though she's a virgin, and she immediately goes to see her relative Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant with John. And verse 39, we can pick up. It says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, this might be a strange place to start, but, but one of the first things we need to recognize, and this is really true throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Jesus exists in this ancient context where stories tend to only be about Men and women were really seen as secondary. And there are obviously, we, we, we met Zechariah last week. He's a man in this story. And John and Jesus are men. So it's not that these stories are opposed to men in the Gospels. But what's striking throughout the Gospels 
especially in the ancient world, is the place of dignity and importance that they assign to women. And so both Mary and Elizabeth served as examples of faith in God last week and continue to serve as examples this week. So already we see that piece of the priorities of the ancient world being turned upside down. And that's going to continue from the women who follow Jesus to the fact that it's women who are the first witnesses to the resurrection. We'll see that theme in this gospel account. So Mary visits Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's baby leaps within her, and Elizabeth is given this prophecy by the Holy Spirit, which again, is it dignifying to Elizabeth. She's a prophet here, but she says this. She says, And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what is spoken to her from the Lord. It's actually John, as an unborn fetus, who first recognizes Jesus' lordship. A child still in his mother's womb. So this story also dignifies children, even unborn children, and treats them as important. And again, that, that valuing of children is going to pop up in the Gospel of Luke. And again, we can miss that, but in this ancient kind of harsher world, children are largely looked down on and seen as useless until they reach adulthood, but not so with Jesus. Two side notes here about this interaction of Elizabeth and Mary. One is that it is a good illustration of us that God can be at work in us from the youngest age. Unfortunately, even today, I think some of us have this idea that children aren't really a part of God's people, that they can't really know and trust in Jesus. And so we just kind of keep them in a holding pattern and try to keep them from getting in trouble until they reach some older age where they can actually become a Christian. And that clearly here, John, still in his mother's womb, is able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Now, that doesn't mean that every child is going to do that, and certainly even children that have put their trust in the Lord, it's going to have a sort of childishness that it will not as they grow older. But we should value and recognize the faiths and, um, and share the gospel with and be engaged uh, training up and raising up our children from the youngest age because they're a part of this thing. And then one other note that I just thought I'd address here because I know some of us have questions about it. A word about Mary being blessed by God. There are some Christian traditions that take these stories about Mary and have kind of developed them to a place where they place her in this position of adoration and almost worship. And they hold that she was sinless and that, um, and they pray to her thinking she's a sort of special figure of influence. And that, that does not fit with scripture. There's nothing in scripture that teaches that. So Mary is not a figure of worship or adoration, but she is a figure deserving of enormous honor and respect. And that's really important to say because reacting against those traditions, I think others of us kind of miss that. But Mary is blessed by God here. She is an example of faith in Christ, um, even more so than Zechariah or Joseph. She is the central figure in these birth narratives. And, and so we ought to give her honor and respect. And in fact, Mary does a good job of recognizing that distinction. If you look down at the beginning of her prayer of praise, which you might have heard called the Magnificat, because that would be the first word of it in Latin. But listen in verse 46. It says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
So Mary recognizes she is a humble servant. God is her savior, she says. She is saved from her sin by the gracious salvation of God, just like everybody else. But she also recognizes that God has blessed her in these remarkable ways. She is the mother of Jesus. And again, notice that theme of the great reversal there. Mary knows that on the world stage, she is a nobody, a young woman from a backwater town in Jerusalem. She's one of God's people, and she trusts in him, but she's not remarkable or outstanding in any way, but God uses her to bring salvation to the world. She is the instrument through which he is acting. And not just her, Mary wants people to recognize that this is God's normal pattern of behavior. If you look at verse 51, it says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is what God is all about. Scattering the proud, bringing low the mighty, and exalting the humble. Again, that's a a radical revolutionary message in our world, but even more in Jesus's. This is a world with actual nobles and emperors. People actually sat on thrones and other people bowed down and prostrated themselves before them. And it was assumed that the mighty were mighty because they deserved it, because they were better than everyone else. But Mary says that God rejects that way of thinking. And in fact, he opposes it. He is about the downcast and the humble. The same pattern continues in the next verse. It says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, the assumption of Mary's world was that poor people were poor and rich people were rich because they deserved it. That the rich were smarter and better born and harder working and the poor had sinned in some way, and that must mean they were under God's judgment. That is how this world viewed people. But Luke tells us that God is about feeding the poor. And not just that he's about caring for the poor too, but he actually shows a sort of priority for them over the rich and lofty. Not that God doesn't love them all, but that he isn't just kind of making everything equal. He's actually reversing the order of this world. So that is the theme of the great reversal. Do you see it? And we might have some questions about how that should look in our world, and we're going to get there. But in order to really have that theme make sense, First, we need to answer a second question, which is why is that happening? Why is this reversal um, such an important thing in Scripture? And I think we see two answers to that in this passage. First, God alone is great. The great reversal is necessary because God alone is great. Mary makes this point in several ways. Take this from verse 49. She says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary is blessed in her humility because God alone is mighty. He is holy, which means set apart, set above everything else in the world. He's the greatest being in the universe. And that's also why Mary says that God topples the proud in verse 51. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So God has toppled the proud so that he can show the strength in his arm. He is showing that he, not they, are truly great. Why does God's greatness require this great reversal? Well, to understand that, we need to ask another question, which is why is the world upside down? In scripture, why is it 
that everything is flipped upside down. Let me just show this to you. Here is the proper order of the world. God makes creation. He makes the universe as an overflow of his glory. The universe, properly speaking, exists to serve him. And then he makes us. And our task is to serve creation, first of all. Adam is supposed to work the ground and cultivate it so that we might glorify God as well. Of course, to be clear, while we exist here to serve creation and God in this system, we also find enormous blessing. God blesses us and creation blesses us. But that blessing is a result of the fact that we are serving those things. We are blessed by other people when we serve those people. We are blessed by the world when we serve the world. We are blessed by God when we serve God. Blessing in scripture always flows downward. As glory goes up, blessing flows down. Here is what then happens as a result of sin. We try to make creation serve us instead of serving it, and we try to make God serve us rather than serving him. We move ourselves from the bottom to the top. That is how the world gets turned upside down. And since blessing always flows downward, we actually miss out on the blessings that God intends. That is the story of the universe. And that is the story that plays out in much smaller ways in our societies and our human relationships and every place that sin has an effect. Let me just, let me just try to illustrate that. Um, let me give you an example. Think about a marriage. In scripture, both husbands and wives in marriage are called to adopt the position of a servant for the other person. Paul commands husbands to love their wives and give themselves up for them to sacrifice their interests and comfort and desires for the sake of their wife. And he calls wives to honor and respect their husbands. Both partners are being called to try to get lower, to, to adopt the humbler posture of a servant in relation to the other one. And in a marriage like that, where both spouses are doing that, they end up discovering that they are blessed. The happiest, most fulfilled marriages you can imagine are ones where both partners see themselves as the lesser partner. They're trying to serve the other person. What happens in a dysfunctional marriage? It is that one or both spouses stop that posture and instead they try to get on top. They try to make their spouse serve them. They try to look out for number one. And the more that you do that in a marriage, even though you think that you're trying to take care of yourself, the less blessings you actually find. The more things get messed up. Messed up As you leave that posture of the servant and try to adopt that place on top, everything falls apart. And that, again, is because that little reality is just a reflection of the big reality reflected on the universe. Everything is broken. Everything is wrong in creation because we reversed its proper order. We have tried to make ourselves the gods and make God and the world serve us. So God alone is great. That's the first reason that we need this great reversal. And therefore, from that we also recognize a second truth, a second reason that we need it, which is that the gospel is always gracious. The gospel the good news, the message of salvation and hope in life is always based on God's free, undeserved grace. Again, Mary gets this truth. Take verse 50. She says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
We're supposed to fear God, Mary says, which means to honor and bow down before him, but we do that because God's mercy flows to us. What we need is not moral perfection or religion, but God's mercy. And Mary recognizes this has always been the story of the Bible. That quote is right out of the Old Testament, and she reflects on the broader story of Scripture a little bit later. She says this, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So Mary understands that her offspring, her child, is the Messiah, the coming Savior. But she says, why is God coming and doing this? Why is he saving us? Answer again, it is because of his mercy. That's why she talks about what God spoke, what he promised to Abraham and to his descendants. When scripture speaks of those promises, it calls them a covenant. The word covenant is central to the story of scripture, and it means God's promised mercy. We sang about it this morning in our first song. We say God's compassion and his covenant through all ages will remain. The reason that we celebrate that is because Scripture is saying, here is why God saves you as one of God's people, right? God came to Abraham, and he promised Abraham to bless him and be a God to him, and that Abraham and his descendants would be his people. And then when Abraham's descendants rebel against God, God does not say, okay, like, fix yourselves, and then I'll come save you. He says, no, because I promised my mercy to Abraham, I will save you. Because of that, not because of something in you. That is a gracious good news of salvation. And here is what I want you to understand about that. The reason we're pointing that out is that that is how God's salvation has to work because it's the only way to turn things right side up. Deep in our hearts, we want to believe that we save ourselves, that through our hard work or church attendance or acts of service or discipline or being a good person or whatever, we want to believe that we provide the reason that God saves us. And do you know why we do that? It's because we want to be saved and find forgiveness while staying at the top of this thing. We're trying to find forgiveness for our sins while still being the ones in charge. If we are earning something from God, if we deserve salvation from him, that makes us equal partners. We have something that he needs. And God cannot save us in that posture because that posture is actually keeping the universe upside down. The only way that we can find salvation is to humble ourselves, to get down off of our thrones and fall on our faces and say, God, I am a sinner. I have wrecked this world. I have rebelled against you. I don't deserve your salvation. But God, please bless your humble servant. What I want you to see, again, the reason for that is because that is actually, as we do that and receive that grace from God, that is actually starting to restore the universe to its right order. And the good news is that as we pray that prayer, God is delighted to bless us because blessings always flow downward, and he does offer us salvation. So what do we do with that? How do we apply the great reversal to how we live? Well, I want to suggest two ways. One of them is going to be in terms of how we view the world and live in the world. The great reversal has implications for all kinds of things that we live our lives. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about something even more important, which is that it should reverse how we view ourselves. I want to just impress this on you so clearly this morning. Um, and I'm going to say it as clearly as I can, even though this might be challenging. Look, in Jesus's ministry, 
the thing that makes the difference between whether people find blessing or curse from him, the thing is whether they are willing to apply the great reversal to their hearts. Jesus comes, and he comes to these people who are outwardly religious people. They are part of Israel, God's people. But what Jesus asked those people to do over and over is to humble themselves and embrace God's gracious salvation. To humble themselves and embrace God's gracious salvation. And some of them do, and they find healing and life and mercy. But plenty of them don't. They are fine with religion. They want to be the people of God, but they want to do it with their pride and honor and position of power intact. They want to do it on their terms. And Jesus says very hard things to those people. He says, woe to you. He says that at the wedding feast, they will be cast out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He tells them that they are going to stand before the judgment throne of God, and he is going to tell them that he never knew them. American Christianity often does exactly the same thing as those people. Here in the Midwest, I, I, I hear people describe themselves or others as good Christian people good Christian people, and they do not understand the absolute contradiction of those words. We cannot view ourselves as a good person, as a worthy person, as a person who deserves the credit and honor. We cannot view ourselves as good and also be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have twisted this whole Christian thing into something else. We have turned the message of Jesus upside down and made it about propping us out and telling us how moral and how deserving and how awesome we are. And that thing weighs on my heart and keeps me constantly brokenhearted in prayer because the reality is that that means that many of us who say we are followers of Jesus Christ are going to stand before his throne and hear him say, I never knew you. Christianity is always about humbling ourselves and embracing the gracious salvation of God. It is about saying, I am not a good person. I am not worthy. I don't deserve honor or credit. I have made a mess of this thing. Lord Jesus Christ, save me. Father, have mercy on me. If you have not done that in your heart, please, right now, humble yourself and embrace that grace. God delights to save us, and he is great and able to save us. But we will only find salvation when we first turn ourselves upside down. Or if I could borrow once more from that hymn we sang this morning, make this your heart cry. God's compassion is my story, is my boasting all the day. Mercy, free and never failing, moves my will, directs my way. God so loved us, God so loved us that his only son he gave. So the great reversal changes how we view ourselves. But as it does, it also changes how we view the world, how we view everything else around us. First, let me just try to give you the big picture of what this means. Here's what it comes down to. Thanks to the fact that the world is upside down, God has a special care and affection for the least and the lowliest of our world. He has a special care and affection for the least and lowliest of our world. You can see that throughout Jesus' ministry. It is why he tells us when you go to a feast, take the place of least honor. 
It is why he says to love your enemies and that the poor and hungry are blessed. It is why he hangs out with sinners and politically compromised people and racial minorities and women and the poor and is gentle and encouraging to them while challenging and condemning the Pharisees and the rich. God has a special priority for people like that. And we should share God's heart when we live and look at the world. We should have a special care and priority for those people as well. What does that look like? Well, in a lot of ways, that answer is way too big for one sermon. And that's fine because we're going to be talking about this in a bunch of different ways at different points in Luke's gospel. Because like we said, this is one of its major themes. But for this morning, here's what I thought I'd suggest. Let's take the idea of the great reversal and talk just a little bit about how it should shape how we think and talk as we move through this coronavirus pandemic and all the challenges that come with it. And I realize that there's a lot of controversy right now about how we should respond and what actions we should take. And I don't really want to go there. It's somehow become this partisan political issue, which is just ridiculous to me, but, um, but I'm not going to tell you what actions you should take necessarily, um, because that's the job of the government and health experts and economists and different people like that to advise us on that. But what I want to talk about a little bit is just the attitude that we should take as we take those actions. What should concern us? What should we focus our heart on as we think about some of the things we're being asked to do? Here's what I mean. Think about like wearing a mask out in public. Now, that one is easier than a lot of them in terms of actions because we're told that we should do that by the government and that is a lawful command and so you should do it. But, but think about our attitude, right? What's striking to me is that it's sort of why should you wear or not wear a mask? Well, you could wear a mask simply because you're afraid of getting sick and you're afraid of all those scary people out there and all you're really concerned about is yourself. And that would actually be a bad reason to wear a mask. Or you could not wear a mask because you're annoyed and it's uncomfortable and it fogs up your glasses, right? And that is also a bad reason not to wear a mask. The, the question we should be concerned with, the thing we should focus our hearts on, is what is best for others in general, but especially best for the least of these. How can I best show love and serve the weak and the sick and the poor and the elderly? That is the question we need to focus our hearts on. And as we do that, it's actually going to form what actions we take, regardless of what specific opinions we have about things. Like another example, like, I don't know, like, think about like having, allowing hairdressers to reopen, right? If you say, I do not want hairdressers to reopen because I don't want to get sick and who cares that they're not able to feed their families, that is an upside down attitude. Or if you say, I want hairdressers to reopen because I don't want to have to cut my own bangs and who cares that they're going to be forced to come to work because many of them are poor and struggling to get by and they might get sick. I want to look nice. Those are both upside down attitudes. What we should be wrestling with is how we can love and care for those people and what options are best for them, many of whom are in that least and lowest kind of part of society. And we need to be doing that throughout this debate. Um, let me just say, first of all, that means that we need to be constantly checking our hearts. One of the hard things about everything I just said and everything about these debates is that you can kind of make whatever your opinion is sound selfless, right? You can, you can say, I support this or this 
for these kind of selfless, noble reasons. And, um, and so we need to just check our hearts to make sure that that's true, because it's very easy for us to say that while actually having a different motivation. But two, more than that, you might, on some of these issues, feel like there aren't easy answers. And that's honestly where I'm at a lot of days. I feel the weight of this, and I'm often like, man, I don't know what to do. But maybe that's a good thing, too especially with how partisan things are becoming, because one of the best ways to fight against that is to really examine your position and grieve for the ways that all of this is hurting the lowest and the least of these, because what that is, is humility. We can feel frustrated, we can feel confused, but in many ways that's putting us in a posture of humility, where we can simply come before God and recognize that we need him to act. So we need to think about our hearts for the least and the lowest and seek to have a special care for and priority for them. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in the coming months. God's great reversal is going to be a major theme. But this morning, here's what I want to leave you with. In its first few centuries, Christianity turned the world upside down. In terms of growth, It went from a persecuted minority to a global religion in terms of social change. I mean, the reason modern societies care for the poor and have ideas like human rights is largely because of the influence of Christianity. It turned the world upside down. It toppled empires and valued people. And the reason it did that was in no small part because of this great reversal. That process that that caused the church to turn the world upside down. It wasn't because it got political power. It wasn't because of reform movements. It came down to this. It was that people found their hearts turned upside down by the gracious gospel of Jesus. They humbled themselves and found God's salvation. Their hearts were turned upside down. And so the way they viewed the world was turned upside down. And the way they started to live in the world was turned upside down. And they shared God's heart for the least and the lowest. It started in their hearts and spread into their attitudes and actions. And from there, it changed the world. We have lost that at times in our modern faith. We don't have a lot of turning upside down of the world happening for our hearts or for our actions. And the reason for that is too often because we have missed the need for it in ourselves. We must apply this message of Jesus to ourselves. And as we do that, we will find that the world starts to change. Friends, would you pray with me? God and Father, I pray that you would come and meet us. And I pray, first of all, that you would work the great reversal in our hearts. Lord, whether we have never claimed your name or whether we've claimed it for our whole lives, convict us of our sin. Breathe life into the deadness that is within us, Lord, and and draw us into a place of, with tears in our eyes, more clearly seeing the glory of your cross, of your work of merciful salvation. Lord, teach us to recognize that we are sinners, but that you love us and have saved us. And give give that, let that give us a posture of, of humility and a posture of charity towards others, and a posture of joy as we recognize that it is not what our hands have done that have done this, but it is simply your kindness and love. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be agents working your care in the world. Help us to care for the least and the lowest. 
Lord, I pray especially this morning for them as they are in so many ways afflicted. Lord, I pray for the elderly who are sick and alone, many of whom face death or the potential of death if they were to contract the coronavirus. I pray for those whose jobs have been stripped away from them, especially those who do not have the kind of financial reserves to provide for themselves. Pray that you'd be a provider and caretaker to them. Lord, I pray for those who struggle with despair and loneliness and discouragement as all of those things have been deeply accentuated by this illness and the lockdown orders. Pray that you would be a companion to them. And I pray in all of this that our hearts and our actions would be seeking to show them your mercy and care. Lord, I pray all of this knowing that you are coming ultimately to turn the world right side up. That when Jesus returns and your kingdom comes to earth, Lord, that all will be made new and all will be made good. And so we anticipate that day and say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Join me now, friends, in the prayer Jesus taught us to pray.